Hey everyone, welcome back to the Monday edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and on the line today we have Mercy Pilkington of GoodyReader.com. Mercy, how are things? Going great, how are you? Not too bad. So, you recently went to a fairly solid convention that's centered around self-publishing called Pubs uh, SmartCon. I did actually held last week in Charleston, South Carolina. It was the first year for this event. And actually, you know, it looked on on the surface to be mostly about self-publishing. Really, once you got in the door and really started to interact with people and with the organizers, the faculty, it was really just about publishing. And, I mean, there were, uh, of course, the the big names in self-publishing were there, like Hugh Howey and BiblioCrunch, things like that. But then... The executive editor of Penguin Random House was there. Same with Algonquin Books. And one of the things that really struck me as I'm making the rounds and interviewing people and taking some pictures was the fact that there was no divide. I was looking for the us versus them and the the cool kids table over here of traditional authors and publishers versus these, you know, people who just bought their ticket and came to the event. Um, and there was none of that. So you'd, you'd see some 60-year-old woman with her cane and her notebook ready to take notes on how to write her mystery book sitting literally next to the executive editor of Penguin Random House. So it was a really great event in that regard. And it is the first sign I've seen of a very genuine effort to just produce quality books. It doesn't matter how the book comes about or what method you choose. This was really the first sign that I've ever seen of an an effort to bridge all the gaps in publishing. Do you think that this will be a trend in publishing, the publishing world in general, where indie authors, aspiring authors could sit side by side with traditionally published authors with no divide? I hope so. I mean, C.J. Lyon was there, of course. She's a hybrid author, and and by all accounts, so was Hugh Howey. Um, A lot of people were there. Jane Friedman was there, who was the was one time one of the publishers with Riker's Digest, um, not the one from Open Road Media, the other famous publishing industry executive, Jane Friedman. Um, she was one of the keynote speakers. And so there were a lot of great minds in the room talking over brunch you know, to, to anybody who bought a ticket to come. And so there was none of this formality that we find at some of these conventions. Um, I'm, I'll say I'm tired of covering conferences where all we hear is Amazon's bad and self-publishing sucks. I'm sick to death of those conferences, but this was a really worth it event. Um, When I sat down with one of the five organizers of the event, she said, you know, they thought of everything down to what day of the week to have it to get the best rate for everybody on hotels, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of effort put into it. I know from a, a, company standpoint, one of the really cool things, a lot of the companies, Nook Press, you know, BiblioCrunch, lots of different people were there, the uh, Indie Authors Alliance, things like that. Kobo, of course, was there. Um, but there was a, a little map for a drawing, a, a prize, if you went to every single exhibitor booth and got them to sign your map. And so that kind of thing, just to ensure that everyone is given as much information as they can. And that was one way they did that, was to make sure that you had an incentive to go visit every booth. And so, I mean, it was, it was a really fun, lighthearted and informational event with some great sessions. So do you think that this conference will uh, go on? Do you think there'll be a second iteration of it? They said there will be, so I know that. So uh, Jacqueline Gum was one of the organizers who I talked to, and she said they will definitely be doing it next year. They had a lot of input this year. There were a lot of surveys for participants to fill out, telling them what they did and did not like. She is not certain about it being in the same location. Uh, I think Charleston was a great spot for it, and that's one of the things that I appreciated. There's not a lot of great writing events and publishing events in the southeastern United States. And so, and, you know, Charleston's kind of in the middle there. If you're coming 
coming from New York or Florida, you know, you're kind of middle of the road there. Um, so they're not sure about their venue, but they definitely want to do this again in 2015. So you will be attending another conference at the end of next month, uh, the IDPF and uh, Book Expo America. And as mm -hmm. people know, this is one of the largest, uh, if not the largest publishing event in North America. And uh, the IDPF is mainly focused on digital and a goodie reader is the media sponsor for the second year running and the IDPF conference actually is going to two-day format as opposed to the one-day format. Are you excited? Oh, absolutely. We always hear some great information. Of course, the first year that Goody Reader, Goody Reader, excuse me, covered the IDPF, uh, it was for the launch of a lot of great devices and innovations. It was when the EPUB 3 standards were formally adopted. Um, it's when, of course, the Kobo Touch came out, the Nook Touch came out, you know, so all in that same event. So it was a big whirlwind of who could, who could do something more exciting than their competitor that day. So it's always a good event. And uh, I will say that's another one where it almost used to feel like ebooks were an afterthought where they were kind of the pre-show before BEA kicked off and now there are so many concurrent events happening that you know IDPF is just as important as Book Expo and and so is the You Publish You event so we're seeing a lot of a lot of attention given to other realms of publishing at these major events all right, so let's talk a little bit about self-publishing because this is your area of expertise. Um, Mark Coker, uh, he's the CEO of Smashwords, which is likely probably the largest independent self-publishing company out there. Uh, they distribute uh, everywhere, you know, uh, Apple, Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, um, formerly Sony, and uh, a myriad of others. And he actually had uh, written up uh, the Indie Author Manifesto, which was basically um, sort of the, 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 the creed to live by as, as being a, a, an indie author. Uh, give us a rundown on, on the manifesto and uh, do you believe in it? Well, once you get past the tone of the manifesto, that does sound a whole lot like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Yeah. Um, but once you get past that, it is really genuine information. And it's a, a stronghold of belief that we keep saying the industry, the readers, the consumers are so much more accepting of self-publishing. And we keep saying the stigma is disappearing. We're still having to see manifestos like this one that say, I have the right to sit down, write a book, and put my ideas in front of people. And if it's lousy, they'll decide that in the reviews and in the purchasing. But yes, I absolutely agree with what he's got to say as someone who has self-published several books and traditionally published a few books. Um, I, I like what he had to say here, and I do stand by it. So from reading the, the manifesto, um, it, there's numerous key points. I'd probably say that uh, there's about maybe uh, 12 key points about, you know, my writing is valuable and important. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a professional. I take pride in my work. Um, you know, a lot of this is uh, pretty self-explanatory. I think a lot of people that have written more than one book and at least derive some sort of income from this is, you know, proud of their work that whatever uh, they put forth out there, they, you know, they stand by it. They're, you know they're they're willing to go the distance in terms of like marketing and, and self promotion on social media networks and things like that. Do you mm -hmm. think that this indie author manifesto? Do you think that it's applicable to all authors, or do you think it's more applicable to Smashwords authors? 
You know, there was an, actually some discussion that came about in the last few months of what is an author. And if you're not willing to take the steps to be a professional, don't call yourself an author. And I think that is a kind of a minutia distinction there. But we look at the difference between a writer and an author. And yes, I agree that to be an author, you have to put this level of professionalism to your work. He didn't say anywhere that you have to go spend thousands of dollars with some publishing company who's going to take your work and do with it what they will. He simply said you have to treat your work as though it's valuable and as though it's got some kind of worth to society. Even if it's stupid, it has worth in the fact that every time we publish, we are exercising that right to freedom of the press. And there's a, also a lot of argument about what constitutes freedom of the press. But basically, when we sit back and don't share our ideas with a broader audience, we are making it even more possible for people's voices to be squashed. So I support this. I think this is a great move. I would love to see every author out there take their work this seriously and treat it this professionally. If you're not, you might just be a writer. So <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in total agreement with you. Speaking of a Smashwords authors, um, one of the the distribution channels that they can opt into is via uh, the Netflix. Uh, subscription methodology of Scribd and uh, Scribd has a very unique way that they go about uh, offering books to cu customers but Smashwords authors now get a one-year free subscription to Scribd if they opt into the Scribd platform and then they set up like an author profile within Scribd. Uh, what do you think about this? I think it's a good move. The very first time we heard of this agreement coming out, there was very murky information about how authors were going to get paid their royalties when people borrow their books. And it's really funny that indie authors were initially very concerned, um, wanting to know how they were going to get compensated for this borrowing. But yet we're the same readers who want to know why you know Penguin Random House didn't have their books immediately in overdrive <laughs> to borrow from the from the local public library as an ebook. So when it's our own property, we seem to be a little more concerned about where the money's going than when it's you know some big five publishers' work. Um, so it, it's an interesting dynamic. And now they've outlined exactly how authors will be compensated. There are samples where readers, just like on Amazon, readers can look at a sample portion of the book before deciding to borrow it. It. And anything that gets read beyond 20% does switch over into a compensation schedule. Um, the interesting thing to me is one of the things this will cut back on, I hope, is the the abundance of consumers who are buying an ebook on Amazon and returning it. I know that's a common problem for self-published authors. I'm sure it is for rights holders from the major publishing companies too. But uh, yeah, at this time, you're allowed to borrow a book, read through it, and send it back. Um, and that's print or ebook. So I think a significant amount of money gets lost from people who really wanted to borrow a book. I don't pretend to know their motives for taking this money from authors. But now I, I really hope this is another way that we're going to finally see ebook lending and ebook subscription model actually take off. Again, this is not new. The, the IDPF conference in 2010 is where we heard 24 Symbols give its presentation on what it said was its Netflix style subscription model for ebooks. And a lot of companies have tried it and failed. And so hopefully this is actually going to stick with us for a while. So between Scribd, Oyster, and Rooster, I hope subscriptions are here for a while. Yeah, it seems like I 
think that 24 Symbols had a great idea, but the timing wasn't right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of publishers were still resistant to the idea of the whole Netflix for ebooks. But now that right. publishers, I think, are on board with libraries and they don't see uh, by giving it away that it doesn't devalue the product, that mm -hmm. I think that now is the perfect time for this sort of ebook subscription service to flourish. Uh, a lot of front list titles are not available yet, but hopefully you know the more metrics and the more big data that publishers have about it all that they'd be more willing to contribute some of their modern day assets to it now mercy you know we, we're friendly towards Kobo uh, they're, they're, they're uh, a Canadian based company and of course Goody Readers head office is here in Vancouver British Columbia Canada and you know, uh, Kobo, you know, self-publishing program via Writing Life, you're intimately familiar with them. And uh, Kobo is one of those companies that have focused uh, religiously on international expansion. Now, that company has recently fired 63 employees at their Toronto head office. Uh, no idea on, you know, uh, was it executives, was it low, the lowest person on a totem pole. But considering that they only employ 500 people worldwide, Wide, uh, 63 people is just around 10% of their workforce. Um, what do you think is the reason why they let these people go? You know, and this is pure speculation, but just knowing Cobo the way that we do with Goody Reader and knowing that they're as transparent as they can be at times, um, like all companies, they have to guard things like their sales data and their release dates of new technology. But w I feel like we've gotten good information from Cobo in the past. Um, and so I, I don't know that this is anything to hide. My pure speculation is what we keep hearing about Amazon is that they're wasting too much money on innovation, that they're trying so hard with these verticals that they're losing their customer base. And I think Kobo may have taken a good look around and said, you know, we've got 63 extra people in this Toronto office. Obviously, nobody in Toronto is answering their own phone, you know, for the, in the president's office. Now, I'm sure there's still people who, who make copies and get lunch for people, but I think a lot of companies have had to take a look around and say, what exactly are we doing to monetize? How much is that threshold going to be? So when you're a company that makes its living selling $3 eBooks to people, you don't have a lot of wiggle room to go wasting money. Um, and I do know that Kobo does spend a lot of money on its innovation and on its research. And for that, the rest of the industry should bow and thank them that we get a lot of sales data, a lot of tracking data and information on consumer behaviors towards books and things. And that comes from Kobo and those studies are not inexpensive. From what I understand is that Kobo is slowing down on their international expansion and now that they uh, have expanded virtually into every major market in the world barring China uh, and Russia that they want to consolidate. They want to invest more in their app development and they want to focus more on e-reading um, which makes sense because I think the bulk of their efforts all over the years was just like non-stop expansion you know mm -hmm. and I think that uh, their problem profit margins are hurting a bit because as you know the the whole agency model for pricing was abolished and that was uh, right. Kobo's ace in the deck where they could be competitive with uh, Apple and Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble because there was a uniform landscape uh, of a consistent pricing methodology but right. once that was scrapped it's almost going back to that hybrid wholesale solution where you know Amazon could outprice basically everybody 
and and that spells trouble for Kobo. So mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of extenuating factors about why Kobo's letting go of these people, and likely we'll never know. But from what I understand, talking with Kobo is that they just want to they want to focus on reading now. Um, they want to focus on uh, staying with the markets that they're in and, and develop some core technologies surrounding that. Um, one thing that I wanted to uh, mention to you, Mercy, and I'm not sure that you're aware of this, that Amazon purchased uh, digital comics company Comixology. I had simply heard that headline. I had to click on it to find out more about your article. That's exciting news, too. Okay, so it's an undetermined amount of money, and um, Comixology is probably the largest digital comic distributor out there. They have had over 200 million downloads since they launched, I believe in about 2009 or so, so uh, that's not too bad. And uh, they power the apps of Marvel, of DC, Boom Studios, and a number of other uh, companies. So when you download the Comixology main app, you have, like, I think over about 150 different publishers you can buy comics from, but when you download the official Marvel app and browse the selection of comics, it's actually powered by Comixology. I mean, you just log in and it's a Comixology login system as opposed to a Marvel system. So um, I think that the deal closes uh, pretty shortly, but already there's reverberating effects within the comics industry as Comixology just updated their Android and iOS app and iOS customers um, are up in arms about this because it's very similar to the Amazon Kindle situation where um, Amazon was selling a lot of books through iOS and then they were you know Apple had introduced the commission system or uh, where everything that you bought, whether it was an in-app purchase or the purchase of an app, Apple collected 30% uh, royalties. And this is like, you know, um, everything. So what Comixology did is they updated their iPhone and iPad app and pre- actually prevented people from purchasing eBooks through iOS. And instead, they're cur- you know they're encouraging people to go to the website, to purchase books from the website, and then uh, those comics will be synced within the app. Um, Mercy, you know we were around when Amazon stopped selling eBooks through their Kindle app on the iPad or iPhone. Did you notice? Um, like a a decrease of purchases through Amazon through those devices? I didn't. And actually what really worries me is it just makes Apple look all the meaner. Um, We've already covered all this news surrounding the ebook price fixing, the antitrust lawsuit, these secret closed door meetings and threats against publishers who wouldn't comply. And then the next thing you know, my Kindle app no longer sells me books. And so I think consumers, rather than saying, well, you know, there you go, I shouldn't own, I shouldn't work with Kindle or I shouldn't work with Amazon. Instead, I think they rallied and said, you know, this is unfair. I, I have the right to decide how, how my $800 iPad is going to work. And so I, I, I fear the same thing is going to happen in this case. And if there's too many instances where Amazon is made to look like the poor downtrodden little company that's just trying to do good for the world, <laughs> I think it's going to backfire in a big way in a lot of companies. You know, um... I did a lot of business with Comixology because it was one of the few platforms that allowed me to just like buy things in one click and use my Apple ID to make purchases. Uh, mm-hmm. No other e-reading app really for iOS allows you to do that. Like Nook, Amazon, mm-hmm. Kobo, you can't actually use their app to buy books. Where mm-hmm. And I think that 
you know, if if you look at Apple's market share, I think that they uh, control about 14% now of the North American digital book market. And their growth was directly proportionate to other retailers pulling the ability to buy content through their apps. So it comes down to the only but if you if you want to buy if you want to read ebooks on your iPad or iPhone, the only way to do it is via the iBooks app because it's the only system that allows you to actually purchase digital content on the iPad. And my kind of wondering is that will more people start buying comic books through Apple now instead of Comixology? It's really possible if people are for for looking for the convenience of it all. But my my personal relationship with people who are huge comic fans, they know when those comics are coming out. Nobody just goes, oh, hey, heard about a new one, and decides to check their app. Um, so my thinking is that people are going to be prepared to make their purchases, if not pre-order, which is something Amazon loves to set up in place. And so, I don't know, it will be interesting to find out how consumer behavior shifts knowing this. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems as though even their Android app was updated, and instead of going through uh, the Google system, which Google, you know, more or less mandates, Comixology developed their own end-to-end uh, -end shopping system. So, if you want to buy, uh, if you want to buy a comic through Android, you have to uh, you have to use their uh, system. Is there a train there? Yes. I thought I muted it. I'm sorry. It's okay. I didn't mute. I didn't mute. <laughs> sorry. So in any case, um, the Comixology... <laughs> no, trying to go away. <laughs> the Comixology situation is, is murky. Uh, we have really no idea what Amazon's going to do with the company, but I do know that I've spoken with a lot of people, and they're really upset that they can't buy uh, digital comics anymore. Although that the, if you have the Marvel app and you're at least a fan of Marvel comics, you could still do one-click purchases through that app so um you know it, it's a small consolidation as you will and that's just because marvel and comic Solid, you actually have a signed agreement in place that said you know we're going to sell your single issue comics and we're going to do one click purchases so at least until about 2015 you'll still be able to buy marvel comics but everything else um you'll have to buy through the website and this is uh this is sort of eerily reminiscent of what Kindle had to go through that for a while, Amazon was not seeing a lot of sales through iOS devices. Um, and they had to train their audience to, you know, go to Safari, go to Amazon on the web browser, make purchases, sync them to your account, open up the Kindle app and read books. It's, it's jumping through a lot of hoops. It was way easier to just open up the Kindle app, buy a book and read the book right away. So um, Comixology, now that they're owned by Amazon, is going to make customers jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, Mercy, now that we talked really about everything we wanted to talk about today, do you have any final thoughts on anything that's happened in the last week? I do. I really want to know more about Comixology in regard to how it could help self-published authors. Um, we've seen a lot of platforms that have sprung up in a small way that claim that they're making their product available for these untapped markets of writers. There are absolute geniuses out there who are still cut off from the access that Mark Coker's indie author manifesto claimed to give us. That whole manifesto was about the fact that the, we all have something valuable to say. Somebody somewhere wants to see it. But unless you're a novel writer or you've written a nonfiction text, it's really difficult. Early on, we even saw difficulty in even self-publishing poetry because of the spacing and formatting issues. But now it looks like we still have uh, comic authors, we have graphic novel authors, of course, cookbook authors even, 
who are still struggling to find a really beautiful platform and a really easy way to distribute their content and get it in front of readers. So I'd love to see Amazon get its hands on that as part of this deal. Yeah, I mean, Comixology does have its own self publishing platform called Comixology Submit and a number of people have taken advantage of it but I would like to see the day where Comixology Submit is tied into like Amazon Create Space where you could actually make physical versions of your comics and have them right. distributed to comic stores. I mean as an end game that would be very compelling and that would be something that nobody else would actually be able to offer. Uh, right. Because, you know, Ingram and, and Kobo, uh, they don't really offer any type of self-publishing for comic books. So um, Amazon's actually in a pretty unique, uh, you know, uh, situation here. Um, so you guys have been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show uh, with uh, Mercy Pilkington and myself, Michael Kozlowski of GoodyReader.com. If you have any questions about anything that we've talked about today, you can drop a comment on the radio show link on our main website at GoodyReader.com. If you're listening to the show on iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or a myriad of other sources, uh, just you can visit our website directly to make comments and we'll endeavor to uh, reach out to you all and answer any of the questions and concerns that that you may have. Uh, Mercy, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Everybody, take care.